Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 61. It's been called the world's most important number because it's used in a wide variety of products, including, you know, surprisingly things like um, student loans in the US. A lot of US mortgages are actually pegged to LIBOR. So the idea with the risk-free rates is that they're actually backward-looking. They're looking at actual transactions that have taken place, actual interbank lending and borrowing. It's, in theory, a much more accurate and much harder to distort rate that's being produced. If we get the turn sofa rate by the end of the year, I think we'll be in a much more comfortable position. But I think many of our smaller members certainly will wait for that. My name is Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. In 2014, the Financial Stability Board, or FSB, recommended that banks should use risk-free rates, or RFRs, as alternatives to LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, as well as other term-based interbank reference rates. Despite delays due to the COVID pandemic, term-based interbank reference rates are being phased out And according to the Loan Markets Association, LMA, 2021 has seen a sharp increase in loans referencing RFRs. By the end of 2021, it's anticipated that these rates will be discontinued, transitioning to the Sterling Overnight Index Average, or SONIA for short, and for the US dollar benchmarks, the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, or SOFA. But what does this mean for trade finance? trade finance documents such as master participation agreements, products, and what are the current recommendations? Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sean Edwards and Paul Coles at the International Trade and Forfeiting Association, ITFA. Good morning. Thank you both for joining. Thanks, Deepesh. So in 30 seconds or less, could you guys give a quick introduction? Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? Sean, I'll start with you. Okay, thanks. Yes, I'll kick off. I'm Sean Edwards. Thank you for all of you listening in. I'm uh, chairman of the International Trade and Forfeiting Association. That's my night job. My day job is as head of legal for Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corporation. For those of you who are new to it, we've been around for just over 20 years. We have around 250 members around the world. And amongst many things that we do is to run a market practice committee, which is headed up by Paul. And one of the subjects we're looking at uh, is what we're going to be talking about today, LIBOR and what it means for trade, because it's had a slightly different impact to the rest of the banking market. Thanks very much, Sean. And Paul, over to you. Thank you, Dipesh, and good morning, everyone. I'm Paul Coles. I'm on the ITFA board as well. And as Sean mentioned, I head up the Market Practice Committee. In my day job, I'm at HSBC in the Portfolio Management and Distribution team. Thank you very much, both. So, Sean, can you give a brief history of LIBOR? Why does it exist currently? And is the LIBOR transition related to the LIBOR market scandals that we saw between 2008 and 2012? Yeah, so quickly, because all of this is a little bit historical now, but LIBOR, London Interbank Offered Rate, was created at the beginning of the 1970s, actually. It was created by a Greek shipping banker in London who was trying to find a price for a syndicated loan he was putting together, and there was nothing around at the time. 
So he sort of rung up a few of his friends and they came up with an average rate. Now, from that very small start, it then became a huge thing. It's been called the world's most important number because it's used in a wide variety of products, including, you know, surprisingly things like um, student loans in the US. A lot of US mortgages are actually pegged to LIBOR, which is a bit surprising, but it's a benchmark rate that's ubiquitous. And that's why the change to a new rate affects not just the UK, but really banks across the world. Huge impact, of course, in the US, but it will have an impact everywhere. What we had just after the end of the global financial crisis were a couple of scandals involving the rate fixing, essentially, a couple of the big banks. I mean, the way LIBOR was fixed was to ask a number of panel banks to give a rate, and then they were effectively top two or three, I don't know what it was, were taken off, were sort of topped and tailed, and the remaining rates were averaged. Now, because this rate is so ubiquitous and used as well as in derivatives, depending on certain banks' positions was a benefit for them for the rate to be higher or lower. And because it was a small club of people who effectively set the rate, by then the rate that was being administered by the BBA, the British Bankers Association, but they relied on their inputs from these various bankers. As I say, people, some of them at least, put in rates that suited their positions. And as a result of that, things started to come apart. And you fast forward a few years after the discussions between the authorities in the US and the UK, it was decided firstly to try and uh, reform LIBOR. But then when it was clear that there was, at least to the authorities, that there was no real underlying market because the what the market tried to measure was the deposits that were being offered between banks. That's not really the way banks fund each other anymore. They rely on a wide variety of funding sources. So the reality, if you like, of those quotes came into question and it was decided to do away with them. We are where we are today with the transition to the new risk-free rates, as they're so-called. Thank you very much, Sean. And that's a really good background. And has the Loan Market Association or others provided updated guidance for the trade finance community on the LIBOR transition? Yeah, so the LMA have done an enormous amount of work and it's probably the biggest thing that they've got going on. They've produced a lot of documentation for the syndicated loan market to uh, really following the evolution of the transition. It's not something we really have time to get into here, but because these the new risky rates are backward looking as opposed to LIBOR, which is a forward rate set at the beginning of an interest period, that's had a lot of knock-on impacts, uh, technical impact on how loan operations work. A lot of technical issues have come up and these standards vary a little bit from currency. So they have done a lot of work. However, in relation to trade finance, for reasons that Paul will probably deal with, we do need to have a forward-looking rate, a rate i.e. that's fixed at the beginning of each interest period. And they have actually not said very much about that until quite recently but I'll leave that to Paul really to deal with. So in terms of what the LMA have said on trade, relatively limited, that's really been left to the trade association such as ourselves, SBC. Thank you very much. So Paul, and I know Sean touched on it earlier, why is LIBOR transitioning to risk-free rates? And can you just talk about what a risk-free rate is? And was this development welcomed by the community? Well, risk-free rates, as Sean mentioned, it's instead of being based on a number of banks quoting their rates on a forward-looking term basis and then taking a weighted average. And it was something that was historically liable 
to being distorted if people wanted to do that. So the idea with the risk-free rates is they're actually backward-looking. They're looking at actual transactions that have taken place, actual interbank lending and borrowing. It's, in theory, a much more accurate and much harder to distort rates that's being produced. And again, the concept of it being risk-free is you're not including each bank's individual views as to what its pricing would be, what it's quoting. So that's why perceived way forward to remove the risk of distortion be to go for these risk-free rates and to use them for any lending in the future. Now, is it welcomed? I guess it may well end up being welcomed as an end solution. The challenge has been for people to understand how to transition to them and what the actual impact is on their business. So whilst in, in theory, Yes, it's a good way of reacting to the problems that happened in the past. The devil lies in the detail. And I think that's where all the markets that are impacted by this are just trying to understand how do they apply this in practice to all their relevant products that historically refer to LIBOR. And what have the regulators said, Paul? The regulators, uh, as again, Sean mentioned briefly earlier, there has been some discussion between them as to what this should look like. And they've all been actively encouraging and or instructing the financial industry in their respective markets to move away from LIBOR and to adopt um, the risk-free rates. They've been pushing that agenda quite hard, especially in the UK and in the US. I think where there's maybe, again, a little bit of confusion is they're not all in sync with each other at the moment. And where the market is, again, trying to understand more clearly is what happens when you are dealing in, for example, you're based in the UK, but your transactions are dollar denominated. The situation is always much clearer for domestic business than it is for the cross-border business using foreign currencies. It's worth just adding a point there, which is very important. I mean, Paul's mentioned of domestic regulators, but of course, and the regulators have been the most active have been the Fed in the US and the PRAFCA in the UK. But we have to remember that when it comes to trade finance, there's a lot of banks that are regulated by other regulators. And a lot of these have very little to say in some cases about liable transition. It's produced, you know, a sort of very um, uneven playing field where you've got some banks that are being pushed. And this is especially the case in the UK and I think also in the US, but certainly for Paul and I, our experiences in the UK where the regulators are really pushing this transition very hard, but other regulators outside of those countries are not, or they're pushing it at in a different way or at a different speed. So for trade, that's very significant because we're not on the whole lending money domestically, we're lending it cross-border. Interesting. So let's go into a bit more detail on these RFRs. And Sean, let's start with Sonia. What's Sonia? And also what is Sonia TSRR. Yeah, so Sonia, as you mentioned at the beginning, sterling overnight interest average. It's a rate that's published by the Bank of England. And, you know, as Paul has said, it's it's based on sort of, because it's historical, it's published, it's the rate for the day before, because it's published by the Bank of England, it's considered much more secure, less prone to being manipulated. If you like a historic rate, it's one day before, and that's where a lot of these issues for in liable transition come up. Now, that's the historic rate. So the term Sonia reference rate, the TSRR, is the forward-looking version of that rate. So currently, there are two providers that are looked into publishing this rate, Refinitiv and Ice Libor. And there is a third one, FTSE Russell, who are um, testing out the rate as well. So 
that's also another confusing factor for users of forge rates in Sterling because they're actually three different providers. The methodologies are very similar, but not identical. And, you know, that's probably where we'll end up is that the market will choose a favorite rate and over time we'll have one or maybe two providers. Sean, so what's SOFA then? And uh, will there be a term SOFA? Yeah, so SOFA is the rate for, for US dollars, stands for Secured Overnight Financing Rate, and is published by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Like Sonia, it's the rate for the day before. And so they, that brings with it all the complications that we've You've already mentioned about, about the use of backward-looking rate and the impact that has on calculations, especially on loan ops and the like. Now, unlike Sonia, there is not a the moment an approved provider for a term rate and so forth, and that's hugely important as we'll come on to in a little while because there are trade finance products that need can only work with term rates. And there are others where borrowers would prefer to use a term rate. So at the ARC, which is the private committee that advises the Fed on LIBOR transition, has said that it's not in a position to recommend a provider, but it has published some principles. The complication with actually Sonia and SOFA term rates is that they're based in some shape or form on the use of forward rates or overnight interest swaps. So basically originate from the derivatives markets. And there's a potential for a bit of a negative feedback loop there if they use too much to produce forward rates. So there is still a lot of discussion in the US, and that's obviously very significant trade finance. Most of international trade finance is denominated in dollars. Thanks, Sean. Paul, are the RFRs produced compatible with standardized trade documents such as the BAFT and ITFA master participation agreements? Interestingly enough, they don't have a huge impact on those particular documents. If you look at the BAFT MPA, the references to reference rates, in fact, cover the scenarios where you have overdue interest or default interest, in fact. And in that scenario, you're typically looking in arrears at an event that's happened, i.e. the non-payment and the default interest that you're accruing on that. Where it becomes more interesting and is how you handle it in the day-to-day operational aspect. Because when you're quoting the pricing on the transaction, that just goes into the offer and acceptance, which is the transactional component of that master agreement. And it means that you can actually state in there whatever you want to state. So if your pricing is based on an RFR or there's a term RFR or you have LIBOR still or you choose something else altogether, the way in which the offer and acceptance and the concept as a whole within the the master participation agreements is actually very flexible and it doesn't impact it too much. The real challenge is how do you handle from an operational perspective if you choose to use an RFR, which rate are you going to refer to as Sean mentioned earlier for Sonia, there are already two publishers. So you need to be aligned with your counterparty as to which race is going to be the agreeable one. And what do you do if you end up referring to different ones? If your respective institutions have chosen a different rate for their internal systems, how do you bridge that gap? Thanks, Paul. And as you mentioned, the devil really is in a detail there. Let's talk about the customer. What's the expected impact of the transition on the end customers of banks offering trade products to them? There are going to be a number of 
different impact depending on which customer you're you're actually referring to. I think the first thing that's happened is all the banks have had to make multiple communications with customers, advising them there will be a change. Early on, I think it was difficult to quantify what those changes would be, but uh, clearly for, for different products, it will have a different impact. The way in which the pricing is quoted to customers will change. And so a lot of it is down to educating the customers as to what's happening and making sure that the customers fully understand why the changes are happening and what the net result will be for them. I think the other aspect is beyond the day-to-day customers, you also have the interbank transactions. So if you look at it for members, for example, doing secondary market trade transactions with each other, they are all educated counterparties. They know how LIBOR operated and they know that there are changes happening with the transition away from LIBOR. Again, the degree of information and how that impact will happen is still being worked out. And that's really where ITFA and the other trade associations are trying to make sure you know we share as much information as we can about what's happening so that everyone can fully understand it and know how to adjust to these changes. If I can, it's just worth adding there that what the regulators are saying is that this should be as far as possible economically neutral for the customer. So there are big operational impacts. You know, the main one, as Paul has mentioned, is that if you're not using a term rate, you don't know until the end of the interest period how much it is you have to pay. And that has a huge number of operational and actually economic accounting impacts on customers. Far less so, of course, where you're using a term rate. The idea is that it should broadly be the same for the customers in financial terms. And that's important to bear in mind when you're transitioning the book. Thanks, both. And and I guess going into a bit more detail on that and Sean, both from a primary and secondary markets perspective, will switching outstanding contracts be quite a big job? And I guess we could probably refer to your day job here. Yes, I mean, probably around half of my day job is spent actually on LIBOR transition, obviously at SNBC. We're not just a trade finance bank. So we have a lot of different departments and most of those will be using the backward looking rate. It's a huge impact. One thing which we haven't mentioned here is worth bringing up. It's especially important in relation to transitioning the book because the SOFA and SONIA are so-called risk-free rates. They are, and historically it has not always been true, but in principle, they are lower than LIBOR because LIBOR contain those sort of credit risk elements. And the way that economic neutrality is being maintained in the transition is to include what's called a CAS, a credit adjustment spread, which has now been fixed on the 5th of March by Bloomberg. And that's a spread that you are permitted to add to the risk-free rate to get you back to where LIBOR was. So if you are looking in the sort of a typical transition loan, you'll have Sonia or SOFA, you'll have, I'm talking here about using, you know, not the ones that use term necessarily, you'll have Sonia or SOFA, you'll have the margin, and then you'll have this credit adjustment spread. So getting agreement on that and making sure, as Paul is saying, making sure that customers understand what the change means for them and getting them comfortable with the fact that economically it's neutral is a huge piece of work when you consider the number of loans that banks have on their books. When you look at doing new business, that is uh, slightly different. For trade finance, certainly we will probably be using the term rates there will be a question about whether or not there should be a credit adjustment spread. But it's for big banks, it's an enormous piece of work. 
and there are, uh, as Paul was saying earlier on, uh, small armies of people um, at the big banks you know, who are dealing with this and will actually deal with this for probably a number of years because one of the complications, especially in relation to dollar LIBOR, is that that will not actually disappear until mid-2023. So whilst the regulators in the UK, for example, say that you shouldn't be doing any new LIBOR loans after the end of this year, um, that rate will still be around for another year and a half. There will be transition of the existing book going on during that period. This piece of work is huge. It's going to be around for a long time. And what we found is that banks are at uh, you know varying degrees of maturity and understanding, and that's just the banks. And then when you come to deal with the customers, that's potentially sometimes even more complicated because some of them have only vaguely heard about what's going on. They don't understand it. So there's a big educational effort that banks and trade associations such as it have to do here. Thank you very much. And thanks for referencing that CAS rate as well. So I guess to kind of close off this podcast for perspective, Sean, what are your members doing to prepare for the transition? Or is this still largely a wait and see phenomenon, perhaps more so for the SOFA term rates? Ipa is a is a broad church. We've got the world's biggest banks and probably some of the world's smallest banks, small specialized financing houses. So the big banks, such as HSBC, SMBC, as already mentioned, have got huge teams. They've got a lot of pressure from the regulators to transition the book and to make sure they're not writing new LIBOR business. That luxury is not open to a lot of our smaller members. So they are, in some cases, wait and see. The wait and see is wait and see what for advisors them to do. We've already produced some guidance. Some of it is really explaining what is going on in the market. If by the end of the year, it's really sort of news, if you like, but that news, unless you're really in the swim of this on a pretty regular basis, can sometimes be hard to find. If we get the term sofa rate by the end of the year, I think we'll be in a much more comfortable position. But I think many of of our smaller members certainly will wait for that. They won't be in a position where, unlike some of the bigger banks, they can produce bootstrap their own rates using forward swap curves or forward rates. So they really are, some of them, the smaller ones are really looking to us and the other trade associations to guide them. And I say that is what we are doing. I'm an optimist and I believe that we will have an approved term sofa rate by the end of the year. If we don't, then I think we will have a lot more work to do within working with partners such as BAF and ICC. Thank you very much, Sean. Paul, do you have anything else to add? Sean's pretty much said it all. There's one thing I'd like to, uh, I'd be curious to see how that shapes up. And that's where there are several publishers of a given rate for a currency, where the market will settle. And uh, again, coming back to the point I made earlier, where different institutions may choose different publishers in their respective internal systems, whether that will end up harmonizing and uh, people will end up choosing the same publishers at the end of the day, or whether they'll stay with the separate ones. But it's, it's definitely an interesting time at the moment and lots of wait and see going on just whilst people get their bearings with all the changes which are, are actually coming out almost faster than we can um, provide updates. Yes, yes, in, indeed, absolutely. Well, look, Paul and Sean, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but um, I'm sure we'll be speaking with you quite regularly between now and the end of the year and, and, and also in the near future as we follow this transition. And I think the key parts here is there are a lot of thinking points, especially for some of the smaller banks who don't potentially don't have the bandwidth to actually you know, look at what's going on. And we definitely recommend 
a lot of the work it for and the advice it for publishing on the LIBOR transition. I think the safer term rates are very important to consider here and also awareness of items such as the credit adjustment spreads, CAS. Paul, Sean, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. Speak to you soon. Thank you, Deepesh. Thanks, Deepesh. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.